Hello, you are listening to Decipher This, a podcast about music and technology from Ensemble Decipher. My name is Eric Lemon. And I'm Rob Cosgrove. And we're very excited to be speaking with Dr. Jose Tomas Henriquez today. Tomas is a composer, inventor, educator, and entrepreneur, currently professor of music at Buffalo State College, where he teaches electronic music, music theory, music composition, and is the director of the program in digital music production. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Tomas. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think just to start and to give some context for all the projects that you have done over the years, just if you could give us a little background about how you got started in music and technology. Um, okay, so I, my start in technology, I can trace it back to when I was doing my master's and PhD, which I did at um, University at Buffalo back in the early 1990s. Prior to coming to Buffalo, I had been in Paris, in France, studying at uh, GRM, at the Groupe de Recherche Musicale. So <clears throat> we were doing all types of experimentation using the old techniques, you know, tape techniques, and uh, had the opportunity to, to interact with the great masters of, of music concrete. So it was a very different type of scene. And, um, but it was great, um, uh, that experience in terms of dealing with, um, with electronic music, you know, and having that craftsmanship component where you actually had to deal with tape and cut tape and reassemble. So that, that type of craft was very interesting in terms of dealing with, um, with electronic sound. So I then came to the States to do, to do a, a master's and PhD at, um, at UB, at University of Buffalo. And um, and back then the music department w was in f full force um, using the next uh, Earcam um, workstations, you know, with the with the first original versions of Max. Uh, <coughs> so it was very exciting to 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 be in Buffalo at the time. So so that's my really my my start in music technology. But but parallel to my activities in you know uh, as a composer. And, and as a researcher that does quite a bit of work in, in technology, uh, music technology, I have always had you know, a parallel path, so to speak, with, um, with acoustic and instrumental music. And that has to do really with my background as a, as a, a slide trombone player, as a euphonium player, and someone who went through, through the music conservatory for, you know, for many, many years. So I think this is really interesting, actually, and this is one of the questions that we had wanted to really ask you. And I know that musicologists would be ready to point out that instruments like the violin or the marimba were once new interfaces for musical expression themselves and are in themselves a musical technology. So you, you write for these more traditional instruments. Do you see a difference in composing for some of these older instruments? and the ones that you develop yourselves, or are they part and parcel to one another? Is it all part of like one compositional practice? Well, um, to, be honest, to be honest with you, um, you don't find many musicologists that think that um, a marimba or a violin will be you know, a new interface at the time. So, and that is because you know, um, we are still living in a, an, at a time where there is still some type of pushback from colleagues that come from a, a world of instrumental music that are not 100% comfortable you know, dealing with, with, with electronic music. But um, if that was the case, which sometimes it does happen, um, yeah, I mean, th there's many, dif I think there's quite a few differences in terms of composing for um, 
uh, normal acoustic instruments versus new electronic instruments, especially if those new electronic instruments are truly not mainstream. I mean, one thing is if you if you're writing something for a Moog synthesizer or for an electric guitar, I mean, those instruments have been around for quite a while, and it's easy to 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 let musicians know what you want to to get out of those instruments. But if you are writing for uh, newer electronic instruments that, you know, sometimes instruments that only a few people have access to, uh, such as the Haken finger fingerboard and, 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 and or even the Rolly keyboard, so that that's really um, um, uh, poses a whole new um, series of questions in terms of how you're going to write for the instrument, how you're going to convey what needs to be done, and um, and you do have to 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 interact closely and talk closely with the performers i mean there isn't we are still at a at a time that um, we lack some type of common language and when it comes to the performance of electronic music <clears throat> not only in terms of notation which, which has been you know a problem that has plagued electronic music since its in inception you know in the early 1950s we still are very much dealing with the problem how can we notate what what we are doing and that places us in a, at a place of disadvantage in terms of how can we um, make sure that the music that we are writing are, is going to be properly um, recreated, you know, 50 years from now. Um, um, I mean, I know, <clears throat> I know quite a few composers that, um, that wrote quite a bit of electronic music and then, um, you know, uh, they retire and they stop updating their <laughs> patches and stuff like that. And, yeah. and that, that creates a huge problem in terms of how to make the, the, all of the time that they have spent uh, creating music and, and, and devoting um, their creativity to, to electronic music, how to make those pieces to, to still stay current beyond just the, you know, being digitized. So, I mean, it's easy to, you know, to digitize and try to, to change formats as we go along, but actually to make sure that the, the, all the details that are incredibly important to set up the instruments and to get the sound out of the instruments and, and the, the way that the composer imagines, imagines it, it's going to be, you know, it's always a challenge. So, so the question that you ask me, it's very difficult to, to answer because I think it's, it's very dynamic. It's always, you know, we are always learning new ways to 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 transmit what we are trying to do and i think very often um i find myself you know giving not only indications on paper but also recordings for musicians to know what you yeah. know what type of sound they should achieve um when they are you know trying to put together a composition that i have written mm -hmm. so yeah. but it's definitely a challenge you've created a variety of highly interactive um, electronic musical instruments and gaming controllers, um, and, and in 2010 you won the Guthman Musical Instrument Competition, which is this kind of prestigious. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, now, now it's like it's a huge thing now, where people all over the world make a variety of different types of um, instruments, whether they're electronic or otherwise. So the instrument you built for the Guthman Competition, the double slide controller, is um, an electronic wind instrument. I think that's yeah, mm -hmm. that's so, uh, yes. like the easiest way to. Describe it uh, commonly known as the iwi, um, for um, that resembles a trombone with two sliders and is decked out with all sorts of different controllers like joysticks and various buttons to manipulate parameters of the sound as you play it. Um, so we can link to a video of a demo of this in the episode summary um, if people want to see it. 
Um, but could you describe a little bit about the instrument's controls? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, as a former uh, performer on the acoustic slide trombone, um, I was always interested in trying to to create a version uh, of the instrument that will be in a, you know, an electronic instrument. Um, I mean, we had, and we still have nowadays, some wind controllers uh, made by Akai and made by Roland that, um, you know, going all the way back to the, to the 1980s that um, simulate uh, an electric trumpet, you know, the, the Akai EVI or, uh, or the Akai Iwi that uh, that's the simulates the, uh, a saxophone using the Bohm system. But um, <clears throat> there was nothing um, uh, out in the market that, um, was that was available that would um, use the, the playing technique of the slide trombone. And um, so I decided to, to, to give it a shot. And, um, and instead of just using one slide, I decided to, to actually um, um, utilize two slides. And the reason was very simple. When, when, you are, uh, when you play an acoustic slide trombone, your left hand basically just sits holding the instrument. And which I thought to be really, you know, kind of wasteful to have all of that real estate, you know, just doing that. I mean, your hand is an incredibly, you know, powerful tool uh, when it comes to, to doing things. So um, I, uh, the instrument was built with uh, using two slides and using two um, controllers that attach to the slides. And the, the controllers are packed with sensors, you know, each, con each controller has 13 uh, buttons on-off buttons, um, joystick, um, accelerometer, gyroscope, a pressure sensor. And um, so all of that stuff was used and they are incredibly malleable. They, they move in 3D space. And, um, and I do remember when I went to, to the Gutman competition that um, uh, one of the judges back then in 2010 was Todd McCover from the MIT Media Lab. And, um, and I did notice that he was very interested in looking at my instrument. He took many pictures. so. <laughs> so that kind of encouraged me, <laughs> and, and which was, you know, and then when I when I had the opportunity to actually perform on on the instrument, um, I think I had a bit of an advantage because having a, a, a musical background gave me some type of, I was at ease uh, improvising. So um, when it came to actually play something, I was able to 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 do it without much effort. And many of the uh, a lot of people that come to the to the Getman competition, many are engineers or are people that don't really have a, a very don't have a mature musical background. So I had a bit of an advantage when it came to that. Um, but yeah, and um, and I do remember playing. I mean, we probably saw a video on YouTube that that I am playing actually uh, something that is pretty melodic that ut that utilizes pitches. And, um, and the reason I did that was on purpose in the sense that I wanted to show that the instrument could not only, not only play uh, complex sonic materials by using the hands and all of that um, uh, 3D motion by the, uh, um, uh, applying that motion to, f to doing um, real-time filtering and so on and so, uh, and so, so, on and so forth, uh, but also that, that the instrument could actually be used to play, you know, uh, a Korsakov concerto or some type of, you know, something that will be incredibly right. pitched based. Right. Um, when I create electronic instruments, I do tend to do uh, to create stuff that can be used in a wide range of of um, of approach from including using um, a lot of uh, musical technique in terms of that you could be, you know, uh, someone that practices many hours every day and you could be um, 
someone that can actually develop the technique that would allow you to 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 really uh, play with a great degree of um, of technical prowess so yeah so that's um, the basically the 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 story behind the the double slide controller it is a wind controller because you do have a um uh, sensor that 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 you blow through um, the instrument also I think was the very first one that utilizes it actually utilizes a, a vibration sensor on the mouthpiece and um, <clears throat> so basically allowing a conductor to actually send a signal directly to the to the to the musician via vibration on on the mouthpiece so actually the mouthpiece not only has the vibration sensor has also uh, a pressure sensor and the, and the, and the, and, the, and it detects all, um, variations in in the in, in the blow that the instrument that the player is doing so a lot a lot of stuff uh, uh, going on in that instrument i did contact the yamaha corporation and the akai corporation about the instrument to see if they were <laughs> interested in in um, uh, going for a commercial version of the instrument and i was flabbergasted when i heard their um, reaction which really made me think a lot about <laughs> about a lot of things about the world of commercial electronic instruments. They literally told me that for them to even consider doing a, a commercial version of the instrument, that I would have to dumb down the instrument considerably. Right. They told me that you have all just like too much going. And it, it is true that uh, these um, um, big corporations such as Akai and Roland, they have um, out in the market instruments that are incredibly simple. I mean, the Akai Iwi or the Roland Aerophone, they don't even use um, accelerometers. You know, some stuff that mm -hmm. you literally cost you $2 to put in. Yeah. So they're not using, you know, <clears throat> when you play a wind instrument, um, your body moves. I mean, you are always doing stuff, you know, physically in space, you know, these little nuances that are so important for the performance. And all of that motion in space is totally being ignored by, by these uh, companies that make these instruments. So, um, yeah, so it was a, an eye-opener um, in terms of, you know, what it takes to, to, put a, to put out an instrument out there in the market. And I totally understand why, uh, why now, you know, uh, when you ask someone, you know, wha what musical instrument, electronic music instruments do you know that are available? And people will say to you, you know, electric guitar and electric keyboard. They don't <laughs> really know anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Even though there have been many dozens or even hundreds of instruments that have been created over the last three or four decades. So it's very interesting that that um, electronic instruments are trying to come into the market and trying to, to make a mark and trying to, to stay relevant and, um, and to captivate uh, people's imagination. But um, um, yeah, I totally see that um, how difficult it is.
you raise an interesting point that I think kind of overlaps with something you were mentioning earlier with, you were talking about how electronic composers, they'll notate things out, they won't, they'll retire and then they'll stop, you know, updating their max patch and mm -hmm. the software that they use will go out of date and then everything is obsolete. Um, and they're not spending the time to keep updating it. And nobody's because of the nature of, I think just concert music in general and music mm -hmm. in general, right. Yeah. Is that, you know, music lives from being performed over and over again, especially in the concert art music tradition, yeah. right. Is mm -hmm. that we yeah. have some war horses that play are played a lot. And who knows if Prokofiev had not written for the saxophone, right. Classical mm -hmm. sax might not be a thing. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but so like these new technologies need some sort of social constituency to like bring them forward. And maybe that's, it, it's a similar thing with, you know, electronic instruments. And I don't know, I see like Sun Ra playing in Iwi all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, there, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, um, and going back to something I said before, I mean, I think that that we need to come up with some type of way to to be able to, easily so to speak to um, to be able to to code the complexities of of, of the compositions that we create um, as electronic music compositions um, so that we can transmit that without any type of pain you know moving forward in time yeah um, I mean we all know that the first experiments that were done in terms of of notating music, electronic music, you know, we can trace that back to to Stockhausen when he when he wrote the the study number two, and that you know, which is a you know a piece that lasts less than five minutes, but if you look at the score, it's like two hundred pages of of graphs. It's totally yeah. you know crazy. Nobody <coughs> nobody will ever <laughs> go try to 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 recreate. Well, people have done that, but you know, it's try to recreate that composition based on uh, 200 pages or more of these complex um, graphs and, and, and numbers and so on and so forth. So maybe uh, maybe going further with the, with the AI, we can s somehow try to, well, may maybe we can have software that can in real time uh, code all the complexities of the of the sounds that, that new instrument uh, instruments make and be able to quickly bring that back uh, in, a, in a fast and accurate way uh, as we go forward. Um, that's the only way I see for electronic music to really survive for the things that we do to survive in time. I mean, we are now, you know, people are writing for violins. Violins have been around for hundreds of years and, and they will be around for many more for sure. Um, and, um, it's an instrument that, you know, has some constraints in terms of what it can do, but th there is some beauty in, you know, having constraints <laughs> because you, we know how, how to write for it and how, how it's going to respond. And um, and we can easily, so to speak, uh, keep writing for the, for the instrument, um, and it's not the same for for electronic instruments. But you know, it's a challenge, and I believe that there's a lot of people out there that are very passionate about electronic music and about how to use new new instruments and to try to 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 explore the creatively what these new instruments can can offer. So I'm hopeful that things are. Are going to still, you know, be relevant, um, you know, in the f in the future. Yeah. Um, one thing that is interesting to me is kind of the like continuing work that has to go into like an electronic music project or creating an instrument or something like that. So often when we're making these projects, um, we 
you know, we have iterations, we have prototypes yeah. and sort of things. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain point, you know, if you're approaching a deadline or something like that, that you say, okay, well, this is the final prototype. This is when I'm going to yeah. stop or something mm -hmm. like that. But do, do you have like a point in your process where you say, okay, I, I've arrived at the instrument, like this is like complete or something like that? Or do you see it more as this kind of continuing process? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, when it comes to creating an, a new instrument, there is definitely the, the hardware component, which is kind of easy to, to be done with, you know. Like, um, and then when you start exploring the software, which is equally as relevant to, to showcase what the instrument can do, I find myself doing something that is pretty dangerous, which is, you know, to keep writing more and more and more <laughs> because because the hardware allows you to do that you know the hardware allows you to 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 accept software that is going to 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 make the instrument do do new things you know i remember for for my uh, double slide controller i wrote a, a ton of software and then i kept writing software that would allow the instrument to play um, harmonies in in real time and then to play some type of um, counterpoint in real time and then to play uh, to do pitch shifting and and in 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 different ways and then and then at, uh, and then you know use I also spent some time creating modules for you know for real time audio processing you know to do filtering and to do um, ring modulation and so forth so y you may find I I have found myself just like spending an incredible amount of hours just working on the software. And I and then I look myself in the mirror and say, my God, I mean, it's probably just not the right approach. I should just stop and say, <laughs> I'm going to write pieces just for the, for whatever I have now, because uh, otherwise, you know, I, you just want to create an instrument that is so so encompassing in terms of what it can do. The <clears throat> and that's the beauty of <laughs> of really uh, of an electronic music instrument that is software dependent. Um, that doesn't really happen with a, with a, with a violin. Of course, I mean, you can make an argument that a composer with different ideas can write different, you know, will write different things and, and the, the, the sounds that you can make out of, um, uh, get out of a violin can always change, but you are pretty limited, even with extended techniques and, and stuff like that. But, but with an with a electronic instrument, I mean, really, when it comes to, to software, there is, there is no li limitation. So uh, I mean there is, but it's so it's you know it's so it's, you can do so much. So so yeah, I have I found out that uh, that is actually very very dangerous. I mean um, I can tell you a very interesting story. Recently, I applied to to be promoted to full professor, and I had a, you know a couple of people writing things about my 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 application process, and I had this composer from McGill. You probably know the name uh, Marcello Wonderlay, uh, who is the head of the of the program at, of, of music technology at McGill. And um, when he wrote, you know, about my work and stuff like that, he actually quantized, you know, Tomas has done, you know, X amount <laughs> of, of uh, has invented X amount of instruments, has, you know, uh, written, you know, over 25 pieces of software and stuff like that. And then when I actually saw it quantized like that, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I was actually scared. Oh my God, what, I have, what have I been doing? <laughs> this, this is just insanity <laughs> you've been procrastinating from writing music exactly i mean doing. yeah i mean you know you know life is short and um and um you know and i think that as a you know i think 
that you one has to kind of find um, a sweet spot in terms of when am I going to stop and then I'm going to make all the software I have written and all the instruments that I have written to actually to be um, more visible uh, within the, the the electronic music scene and so on and so forth. So it was really an eye opener that um, that you know writing software and being a, a, a composer slash researcher doing uh, research in software uh, instrument and in, in software and hardware can be almost like a drug. You know, you yeah. know so like you you <laughs> find you find yourself you know just like going back and just like uh, coding and coding and coding and and and, and doing all of so, so yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, um, I think that that um, you know actually where I am right now I I have decided to kind of slow down in terms of trying to come up with new uh, things. I do have you know many instruments that I still look at them and say oh my god I my Sonic Spring I need to finish the software that I have been writing to to make it actually play like a, a concertina <laughs> like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I have not done that. You probably saw a video of the Sonic Spring online where I do real-time audio processing with it, which is very cool. And so, but the the instrument actually that instrument actually has buttons on on the handles that 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 actually allow it to to play melodies and harmonies and stuff like that. And I have I have started to, to write the the software to allow it to play like a normal, so to speak, concertina. So, so there's always, like I said, you know, going back to what I said before, there's always um, space to keep back and to keep improving the, these instruments. So you already brought it up, but you're working on Sonic Spring and um, we saw a video where one of your collaborators was using it as a way to move through 3D rendered space, which obviously has, you know, very interesting applications in the augmented and virtual reality. So you already said that you're trying to apply it in a musical sense um, to kind of represent the concertina. Could you tell us a little more about, I mean, we when we were doing research, preparing for our discussion today, 
you know, we saw, oh, there's um, biometrics that can be added into the controller. And how, how are you applying that? Or are you imagining applying that for musical um, creativity? Um, you have, you know, haptics, right? Yes. Which are mm -hmm. responding, right, to, I guess, the controller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that playing into the musical experience? Okay, so let me give you a little bit of a, of, um, a background. So I invented the Sonic Sprig uh, back in 2011. And that instrument, which actually uses a 15-inch um, metal spring, evolved into a smaller instrument. And that smaller instrument evolved into being utilized mainly as an interface for human-computer interaction. And, um, and what is very interesting is that um, people that have been the most uh, receptive uh, about the use of, the, of this device um, are not actually musicians, but are actually people in the medical field. Um, because I did add, uh, so the, 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 the sonic spring and, the, and the, its offshoot, which is called the spring controller, is based on a flexible spring that you can move in 3D space incredibly flexible, incredibly powerful in terms of how you are able to feel every single nuance of, of motion in space and you, how you get force feedback from manipulating the spring. So I, um, I'm working with force feedback with the controller, but also I, I did add uh, some biometric sensors. Um, namely um, galvanic uh, skin sensors to, to just to test basic levels of stress. Um, there's sensors that um, do sense how hard you are pressing on the handles, you know, um, very sensitive. Um, and also um, a sensor that senses your, your heart rate. And all of, all of this stuff is incredibly relevant for people working, in, in the, especially in the medical field. Um, when you have, um, there's the, the paradigm of the video game has totally infiltrated into, into, into the medi medical profession. So there's many um, medical professionals and companies working um, uh, in the medical field that use video games and use VR and, and uh, augmented reality that are actually very interested in, in using a controller that, um, that applies force feedback um, plus all of, all of these biometric sensing um, uh, signals. Um, so when it comes to music, I, I don't know, um, I haven't really give, given a lot of thought about how to use biometrics, uh, the, the biometric feedback that I'm getting from these, other than um, collecting that data and, and, um, and sending it to the conductor <laughs> yeah. and, and, and let the conductor make decisions in terms of, you know, uh, <clears throat> what should I do or, or what can I ask from the musicians depending on their level of anxiety or their level of commitment to, to what they are doing musically. I mean, when you think about the video game, that's easier to, to think about biometric stuff because you can actually pro program a video game to respond to how you are feeling. And, and you can actually uh, code the game so that it takes you, you know, if you are too scared, if you are playing a game that is kind of scary, if you are just like scared of the charts, then the, the video <laughs> game can, can send you, can sense that you are, you know, Let's not kill yeah. this person with a heart attack. Let's <laughs> send, let's you know, open up you know, an, a new room where you can, you know, sit down and have a mojito right. or whatever. So, you know, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <coughs> so, um, so in terms of music, um, um, I, I do know that there are some researchers out there that have been using um, biometric sensors for, for musical purposes, you know, sensors that respond to, 
to um, the muscle motion, you know, the, and um, but <clears throat> all of these sensing mechanisms um, are not as relevant as um, musically speaking uh, right now, in my opinion, um, as many other things that we can do with these, with these instruments. Um, so yeah, I think it's an open, f a new open field um, to explore. I mean, I keep coming back to the fact that that working with pitch and working with time uh, are st these two dimensions in uh, these two musical parameters keep coming back to me as the most fundamental parameters to work with. And anything that you do, uh, you know, need to go back to <laughs> to dealing with with how we perceive pitch and how we perceive time. Um, even knowing that we live in this post-cage era where we have been looking at electronic music more as working with paintings, you know, where we are drawing with sound and we try, we have tried so desperately to r run away and to divorce ourselves from the tyranny of pitch and the tyranny of, of clock-based um, rhythm. But one of the things that kind of fascinates me is, you know, to study and to uh, trying to understand a bit m better, you know, what are the our limitations, you know, in our minds, and what are the the human mind's limitations? So limitation in a good sense, you know. How can we keep creating music that that is going to be meaningful, meaningful now and meaning meaningful two hundred years from now? And what kind of musical parameters do we need to be focus on, uh, focusing on, so that uh, humans in the future will still enjoy the works that we, that we are doing right now? So that the, the stuff that, that we are doing right now is just not merely experimental for you know for a couple of people just to enjoy at one concert or two concerts. So that's I find that fas fascinating myself. Um, these dichotomy, so to speak, these you know these two aspects of music, you know, uh, pitch-based music and and um, and noise-based music, or you know, complex. And it all ties also to what we have spoken already before, which is the, the difficulty that, that we have in notating what we are doing. So the complexity that, you know, of, of the stuff that we are doing kind of, uh, you know, sometimes you come up, you synthesize a sound that is so beautiful that you say, my God, I can write a piece just by modifying, you know, small amounts of this sound and, and moving, in, moving it through time and, and making, it, making it organic and so on and so forth. So basically, you can we can make a piece just based on how beautiful a given sound can be. That would be totally impossible to, to you know to do with a cello or to do with a <laughs> with a clarinet. I mean, you with those instruments, even though what they make is beautiful, you need to create some type of time structure and pitch structure so so that we can create something that is going to be relevant musically. So it's 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 a challenge, but you know it's a good challenge. Certainly. <laughs>
So over the last few years, you've been working um, at Buff State, as we mentioned before, um, but you're creating this system, um, a 52.1 surround sound system. So that's 53 speakers for anyone that's uninitiated um, in Rockwell's Chiminelli Hall at SUNY Buffalo State. Um, and actually, Ensemble Decipher is going to be the first ensemble to kind of activate the system to sound to this, so it's very exciting. And people are kind of familiar with spatialization maybe in the stereo fields, you know, if they're listening to something on Spotify or if they're listening to an MP3 just on their headphones. Um, but then it kind of it kind of explodes once you get to ambisonics and these, these larger surround sound systems. So we're wondering kind of if you could unpack for our listeners the difference between like this, uh, these ways of spatializing in the stereo fields and then to, like kind of where this exists in that spectrum and yeah all, all those things okay so very good so um let me give you also a little bit of a background how the system came to be um back in 2011 um buffalo state built a new uh, concert hall you know it's a small concert hall on uh, 200 seat and and the concert hall had really bad acoustics you know very very dry was not really suitable for music performance so we, the, the college hired Yamaha Japan to, to install uh, a virtual acoustic system, which basically it's a, a group of speakers and the goal and the function of these speakers is basically to make the, the room more um, friendly in terms of, you know, the, the room becomes more uh, intimate, becomes definitely way better for music performance. And um, <coughs> so when they installed all of all of those speakers in um, uh, in the hall. I did notice that um, the speakers could be used in a different way if they could be if the hardware could could have been changed could changed to be all integrated. So one of the things that is incredibly interesting about the the, the space is that there is a group uh, actually a subgroup of three to speakers that are geometrically um, placed in space. You know. They are exactly the same distance um, 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 in relationship to one another, so they create some type of matrix that allow that would allow I thought that would allow sound to be transmitted in a very smooth way. So anyway, I was very lucky to have at the time to have a dean that was very um, um, bold, <laughs> that actually was able to. Um, make money available for Yamaha to do a, a hardware transformation and that hardware transformation actually meant to install um, a digital um, uh, audio network, a Dante uh, digital audio net network that was able to, to connect all the speakers. So that was just like the, the hardware infrastructure. And since 2013, I have been working on and off to actually write the code that allows you to effectively use the, 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 the room. So basically, yeah, to answer your question, um, going from from stereo, from two channels to going through five, uh, you know, to surround 5.1 um, is already quite a bit of a change. Uh, but then going from 5.1 to, to, to go to a room where literally sound can be coming out of 53 different speakers, it's a whole different um, experience. I have been writing the code so that sounds can be either um, panned in a simple way where sound can uh, sounds can float um, in uh, from left to right you know up and down the hall and stuff like that in a smooth way 
but one of the things that I have devoted quite a bit of time is actually to use the, the, the speakers to explore what we call in, in special audio as point source uh, sound location. So where sounds can jump from one place to, 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 to another and so on and so forth. Um, I have actually been writing um, stuff for, uh, writing software for sound specialization all the way back to 1995, 1996, when I was doing my PhD at, at, the, at the University of Buffalo. And so this issue of sound, sound in space has intrigued me. Um, uh, I can tell you that um, it is a bit frustrating because uh, again, because of the way that we, uh, the, the human mind perceives sounds, I mean, we tend to put, our mind tends to put an incredible amount of um, relevance in the location itself of the sound. You know, where's the sound? That's, you know, our mind has been engineered for thousands of years to, to be able to quickly pinpoint the location of, of a sound, you know, because it could literally save, save our, our lives, <laughs> you know. Where's, where's the big tire coming to get me? So you need to be exactly, <laughs> yep. we need to know. So um, what I have found to be um, difficult to surpass is to, to create the um, sound specialization patterns that allow the, the human mind, to, that allow the listener to, to transcend the, the mere localization of the sound, but to actually understand the creation of patterns in time that have to be that have to do with different locations of of the sound in space that has to be that has been my my goal has to been has been my challenge um and um so i hope that i can showcase some interesting uh, solutions um and i'm incredibly you know uh, happy and uh, looking forward to working with you you guys will be in fact the first uh, ensemble to to explore the space in that way and um, and I hope that something musically interesting can can come back um, out of this experience. Yamaha itself is actually uh, interested in the in in the project. Um, Yamaha uh, engineers have come to see the work I have been doing with the system, and now the, Yam the Yamaha Corporation now is actually installing new uh, virtual acoustic system where from from the get go they are actually wiring up all the speakers that they put in space. So, so they they see the the validity of of having the speakers networked and for um, people to use the the these uh, systems in a more cre cre creative way. So that was you know that has been you know um, good to see that that they are doing that. Um, I mean, this is not a hundred percent new. You probably have heard about the Dolby Atmos system um, that is installed in some um, cinemas. Um, but the fact that w what we have in, C in Simonelli is way more experimental and um, and um, and um, and it's geared towards um, uh, the creation of, of uh, electronic music works that explore some strange stuff. You know, people are not really going to see a, a Marvel movie to see this <laughs> crazy sound specialization stuff. No. Um, <clears throat> I think the Atmos system basically provides an, 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 an additional layer of specialization because you have arrays of speakers above uh, above your head that allow you to hear sounds coming from back and forth in a smooth way. Right. Um, so you can do that in Simonelli, but you can do way more than that. For instance, at Simonelli, every single speaker or channel has its own set of audio uh, processing effects. So <laughs> for each channel of so you can you know do a lot of um, very complex stuff and very interesting things 
but again, you know, um, going back to, to what I said before, that how can you effectively use space as a musical parameter that is powerful? That is a, a challenge. I mean, if you look at the, uh, at the evolution of music, we can actually see and uh, witness uh, the relevance of the different um, uh, musical parameters by looking at when they were notated. I mean, uh, pitch start being notated, you know, when when um, you know more than a, uh, you know a thousand years ago that composers start or people working with music start notating, you know, pitches, and then came <coughs> came notation of time, and and not until the twentieth century, you know, with Stockhausen, do we see the notation of space. I mean, sure, you can say that you know, back in the in the seventeen hundreds, you you or late sixteen hundreds, you you had people doing experiments with sound in Venice at the, at the San Mark uh, Cathedral, you know, the the Gabrielli brothers and stuff like that. But that was like more like it was cool to have the sound of a choir to go from the front of the of the cathedral to go to the back and stuff like that. But it it is with 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 Stockhausen that we see the first efforts to tr to treat um, space as a as a musical parameter, as valid as pitch, so so it's very late that it show that it becomes main, you know, that it that it tries to, to become mainstream, and not very successful, successfully because very few people are working with sound in space, and I think that uh, I truly believe that's because we have to go beyond this barrier, so to speak, which is that our mind totally focus on on location 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 and then to go beyond that to actually to for our mind to understand um, you know patterns you know and and the and the and, the, and patterns that evolve and that um, morph into one another um, just the same way that we, we we deal with pitch where we have patterns of 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 pitches that that are modified and so on and so forth that is really what i find to be intriguing and um, and and not very easy to to succeed at transmitting something yeah. musically via via sound in space. So um, trajectories of musical modernity aside, how how are you trying to address? This? And maybe I should not be asking this question because it'll be a big spoiler alert for our concert later this year. But um, maybe you can give us a little teaser of uh, what you're thinking. How are you structuring space, or how are you integrating? the structure of space into the structure of the work in this new system do you have any ideas that you've been playing around with that you're really interested in sure yeah i can give you a little bit of um, yeah so um <clears throat> i i have a group of 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 um, musical materials that <clears throat> that are intertwined and um, uh, different layers of musical of rhythmic and melodic activity that can that will be presented as as in in mono, you know, basically condensed, and um, which will survive musically totally fine by by itself, and then I can explode it and separate the layers that I have into different locations in space. So basically, you morph from having some type of musical activity that is actually in one single special location, you know, and surviving again. I'm using the word survive, but what I mean is that will be meaningful musically by itself. And then you can basically uh, spread it. You can separate uh, the different those different components and 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 showcase them by having them actually move in different points in space. So that's one of the things that um, that I'll be exploring. That you guys will, that I'll be asking you to 
to help me awesome. <laughs> showcase. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> Excited about mm-hmm. that. So yeah, I mean, uh, um, yeah, and uh, other things. I actually have done some crazy experiments using a Brock fugue where you have different the different voices of a four or five part fugue where you show it in just like one or two or two speakers and then you explode it into different and you actually create um, patterns in space so you have like the voice number one is going to to use you know a, a series of speakers and then is going to to pin to, to go from one speaker to the other the software that i actually wrote is able to 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 be used with DWs, you know, you know, with Logic or Pro Tools, you actually can write MIDI information at the note level, and you can perform it and assign it to any any speaker on in the system. So you can create very complex, very fast things. And uh, I was very pleased to, to see the, that Logic and Max integrate very well. So I'm doing stuff w- with Logic and sending it to Max in real time, and and Max is sending all the sounds. To, to all the speakers I was when I first heard it I was wow it works so it was was great cool. as an experiment so yeah it's a little bit like that uh, Bach uh, Webern um, setting yeah exactly in, yes mm-hmm. but in an orchestra rather than all around mm-hmm. the audience It'll yeah be really exciting to hear yes Thank you for listening to today's episode of Decipher This. Special thanks to Tomas for joining us today. Your hosts are me, Rob Cosgrove, and Eric Lemon. And the episode was edited and produced by Joey Bohicken.